It's a pleasure to be with you here. Um, again, this is home, although it doesn't seem like I'm home very often. But it's a, certainly always a joy for us to be here. Joyce, if some of you are wondering where my wife is, my wife is down in North Carolina. She is at a Faith Academy reunion down in, in North Carolina. It is including all the classes that graduated from Faith Academy anywhere from 65 to 74, I believe. So there's like 200 former students of Faith Academy that have gathered together for a reunion. And, and she has, she texted me, and she hasn't texted me very much. That means she's really having a good time. But she uh, texted and said that it has been a very tiring and emotionally tiring time. A very physical and emotionally tiring time. And I'm assuming by that statement, since she hadn't replied to my reply, she's having too much fun, was uh, that over the course of the last year or so, many of her former classmates, several who have, uh, she knew over in the past, have gone home to be with the Lord or have walked away from the Lord. And so there's those discussions, I'm sure, are going on at the, at the uh, reunion. And uh, it's caused her to also have some emotional times where she's remembering kids who were in classes behind her and kids who were classes ahead of her uh, during this week. So pray for Joyce. She'll be coming home on Wednesday or Tuesday, actually, Tuesday late afternoon. So be praying for her. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah, a very, very familiar portion that we'd like to revisit again this morning. And that is Isaiah chapter 6. Very familiar to all of us. Many times it is, it is read during the breaking of bread, during the time when we remember our Lord. Many times this portion is turned to when we speak about the holiness of God. It reads like this, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terameth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. And may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we certainly need the guiding of Your Spirit if we are to understand the things that You would have us to understand this morning concerning our Lord, Jesus Christ, the One who is lifted up and highly exalted. O Lord, may You lead and guide us by Thy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know that Joyce and I have three daughters. Now, I can remember, and we have eight grandchildren, but I can remember my daughters when they were little, when they were just toddlers, how they mimicked, how they imitated mommy and daddy. They imitated us in in so many different ways. I can remember when they were just little children, they would sit around the table, and when it came to those occasions where Daddy had to feed them, which was usually a messy time, but when Daddy had to feed them, I would put the little spoon in their mouth, and as I put the spoon in their mouth, I would say, Mmm. And for years, my children would say, Mmm, when a spoon went in their mouth. I can remember reading to them. And when I read to them, even though they could not read themselves, after they heard the same book many, many times, they knew the words and they could recite it as you read it. And if you missed a word, they knew you missed a word. And they would read it with the exact same inflections that Daddy read it in. And when my voice went up when I read it, their voice went up when they imitated the reading of that portion. Kids will imitate They will imitate the things that are around them. When they used to play church, they would sit around and they would sing songs that they had memorized. Usually they were Sunday school songs. And then they would would speak and you would hear them say things that were said within the assembly of God's people. As they sat around and they, they played house, you would see them cooking and cooking meals like mommy cooked. They would imitate mom and dad. When they grew older and they went off to school, they began to imitate the things they learned at school. For good and for bad, they began imitating other children, picking up things that other kids did, and then trying those things in our home. A lot of times those things did not go in our home. As they learned that if you didn't want something, you stamped their feet. And they stamped their feet. And they learned very quickly that you do not stamp your feet in this home and expect to get what you want. 
children will imitate those they are around. We will, as adults, generally reflect that which is around us currently. We will generally reflect consciously or unconsciously the culture and the society in which we are surrounded. We know that to be true. We find it in in fashion. We find it in the music that we might listen to. We find it in so many different issues that confront us that the society and culture around us has kind of shaped the way we think. And we as human beings will reflect that which surrounds us and will begin to identify ourselves with those different aspects of of the culture. So the question for us, does the church at the beginning, at the dawn, if you will, of the 21st century, does it reflect the times or does it reflect the Lord Jesus? Does it reflect the times in which we live? Or does it reflect the Lord Jesus of whose body we figuratively are in this world? Has the society and social issues of the day affected Christianity? Absolutely. Absolutely, without question. I can affirm that in just my short lifespan... And some of you who are my age and older can, can do the same. But that in my short lifespan, within the church, the visible church, the local assembly, I have seen shifts. I've seen things that have shifted. Christianity in the postmodern world has become a shadow of what it once was. Even in my brief lifetime. Things Change. Which leads to a second question. What are the things that motivate us? What are the things that we can become passionate about? What are the things that get a hold of our lives and cause us to be passionate about things? By what things do we identify ourselves? We can quickly see this if you're on Facebook by just watching posts as they come up. You can see things that really drive people and motivate people. So what are the things that motivate us? What are the things that we can become passionate about? By what do we identify ourselves? What in our church culture are we passionate about? What honest, honest Description would you give of yourself as to what you reflect? We can come become passionate about what versions of the Bible we use. And that oftentimes, I've even seen that divide churches. We can become passionate about what kind of Hymns we sing, or even the hymnal in which we, out of which we sing them. I've seen churches divide over whether you use the little flock or whether you use the black hymns of worship and remembrance. And, and, and it, it's a shame that we see that, but people can become passionate about these kinds of things. 
We can become passionate about what kind of worship we have. Or the frequency of our worship. We can become passionate about women's roles. About headship issues. About issues of leadership in the local church. We can become defenders of the faith in areas of ecclesiology. On how the church is to function. We can become passionate about political issues. We can become passionate about abortion issues. Gay marriage issues. Gender issues. We can become passionate about our our stance on eschatology and dispensationalism. All good things to have a measure of passion about, by the way. These are all good things to think about and work through. These are all good things that we should be thinking about. It is not that these issues should not be thought about. They certainly should be thought about. And having a biblical passion about them can be good and can be productive. But if we become so involved with these issues and we begin to identify ourselves by these issues, the center gets shifted. The center can be shifted. The Christian life can become a social program. The Christian life can become a pro-life stand. The Christian life can become an organization for soup kitchens. The Christian life can become an organization for feeding the poor. Or a set of brethren traditions. And all that to say that what we need to do is come back to what is central. What does not change. Those things which are immutable. Things that are the bedrock of what we believe. The bedrock of our faith. So that we can see all of these things, all of these peripheral things, if you will, from the center. From the center. And not the center from the peripheral. You understand what I mean? We need to get back to what is central. And, and from there, view all of these other things and not start out here to view what is in the center. Now, the peripheral things that we talked about, we'll find them in operating within the assembly of God's people. We'll find them. We'll find them. Because we are seeking to follow Scripture. We're seeking to obey the Word of God. And so in the church universal and in the church local, we should be seeing some of those, those peripheral things being discussed and worked through. These are the fruits and evidences of a church, of a local group who is concerned about the things of God and a desire to be obedient to the teachings of the Word of God. So you will see those things. But when they become central, we are in trouble. When they become central, we are in trouble. By what do we identify ourselves? By what do you identify yourself? We can become identified by brethren distinctives. 
when perhaps we should be simply identified as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to do His will, seeking to do His purpose, seeking to obey His word. Those who seek to live our lives by the word of God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The center. And we need to, need to guard ourselves from pride in our practice. When we should boast in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That should be our boast. That should be our boast. And a good way to see that happening in our lives, a good way to get back to the center, a good way to see those things functioning again in our lives is to get a fresh vision of the Lord of glory. To get a fresh vision of our Lord and who He is so that we will remember. So we will remember that it is all about Him. It's all about Him. That should at least get one amen. Is it all about Him in your life? Is that what it is? It should be all about Him. Now, over the course of these two weeks, we're going to take a look once again at this very familiar passage with the goal of seeing our minds focused again on those things which are central. Now, borrowing a, borrowing a page, I suppose, from John Clifford's notebook, we're going to look at this in three sections. A holy God, a humbled servant, and a hard ministry. Now, that isn't original with me. I've read it many times in many different places. And I've heard other men use it as well. But that's a nice, simple outline for this passage. A holy God, a humbled servant, and a hard ministry. Now, it's important, and we're going to take just a few minutes, because I know my time is always limited, and I never get, enough, never get through stuff, so then I'm trying to pile it on the next week. But the context is important here for us, I think. And if we go back to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and if you want to turn there, you can. We see something about this man Uzziah. For this prophecy, for this vision comes when King Uzziah dies. Now we learn something about King Uzziah. And it fits into what this um, vision does to Isaiah himself. King Uzziah was a good king. He was doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it came in verse 5 of 26. It says, He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But something happened to Uzziah. Something happened to Uzziah. And we don't have time to unpack this in its completeness. But I just want to go through and look look at what we find in verse 15 now. He made devices in Jerusalem, invented by skilled men, 
to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide. For he was marvelously helped till he became strong. Until he became strong. But when he was strong, verse 16, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. Oh, those verses are very telling, aren't they? Because they describe humanity. They describe a man who was a good man in his youth. He started out as a good man. I find many young men today fired up about the things of God. Desiring to serve God. Wonderful things. Love seeing it. Love hearing their enthusiasm and joy for the things of God. What I want to see, and I wish I could be around to see those same young men as older believers still with the same passion for the things of God. Because sometimes pride will lift up in us. You know, being a missionary, and I went through all these phases as a missionary. When I first went out in 87, there was a, there was a certain measure of pride in that. There really was. And I, and I will admit that freely. There was a certain amount of pride. I was going to do this and I was going to do that. And boy, it's wonderful. All these people are praying for me. And I would come back on furlough and I'd describe all the stuff that the Lord was doing. And I would get great pats on the back and, and sometimes loaded handshakes, you know, and they'd go in my pocket. And I was feeling pretty proud of myself. Pretty proud of what I had done. Pretty proud of where I was. And when a missionary gets to that point in his life, if he does not become humbled by the Lord, his ministry will suffer. His ministry will suffer. And so it was with Uzziah. He was walking with the Lord in his youth. And when he got older and he had all this success that the Lord had given to him. The Lord had given him that success. And when he grew older and he became strong, Pride lifted up in him. And you remember what he did. Now he took incense and entered into the temple, entered into the holy place where he was not to be. He was not a priest. He was the king. And he entered into that holy place. He was probably in his 40s, early 50s, if, if we follow the time scheme. All of those years, he served the Lord. Started when he was 16. His ministry lasted 52 years. He was probably in his 50s when he entered into the sanctuary. And he brings in the incense. And 80 priests come along to confront him. You are doing what you ought not to be doing. Your pride has gotten the best of you, Uzziah. And then leprosy broke out on his forehead. And leprosy spread through his body. And he was put out of the temple. Horror of horrors. Leprosy in the sanctuary. And he was put out and put into his own home. No longer was he sitting on the throne ruling Israel. He was ruling through his regent who was his son Jotham. And now he was put apart. Because of his pride. Because of his pride. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trans, uh, trespassed. Your 
You shall have no honor from the Lord. Then Uzziah became furious. Became furious. How are we when people correct us? How are we when people try to correct us? Are we like Uzziah? We become furious. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know me? How dare you? Or are we humble enough to accept that which comes our way? Uzziah. Now you remember, let's go back to chapter 6. It was in this year now when all of this happened. All of this was now in their past. Years have gone by and it comes to the time when Uzziah dies. King Uzziah dies. Now we remember, don't we, that we come to this vision in chapter 6 of Isaiah. It doesn't come in chapter 1, where you might expect it to come. This is the call of Isaiah to ministry. Why didn't it come in chapter 1? Why does it come in chapter 6? It is interesting to note that for five chapters, Isaiah has already been about the things of God. He had already been prophesying. He was prophesying about the judgment of God that was going to come upon the people of Israel if they did not change their ways. If they did not repent. If they did not change their ways. The judgment of God was going to come upon them as He had promised. For there would be blessing when you followed the law and there would be curses if you did not. And one of those curses would be that you would be overtaken by your enemies. And God was warning. For five chapters through Isaiah, Isaiah has a ministry. And the Lord is warning the people of Israel through Isaiah. Now King Uzziah dies. The death of a king is a startling thing in the ancient world. We see kingdoms very different now. We see kingdoms like Great Britain. The kingdom in Great Britain is, you know, it's a, what they call a constitutional monarchy where the, the, the queen really has no power. She has some power, but she really is just a figurehead. She has no power. If she decided she was going to change something, Parliament would be up in a moment and they would put her right down. She has no absolute authority. But a king in those days exercised absolute authority over those he ruled over. Absolute authority. Now, Jotham had been reigning as his regent for these years that he had had leprosy. Jotham, his son, was now going to become king. There was a little bit of trepidation probably in the hearts of the people. How would things be? How would things go under this new king? who now would be exercising absolute power, absolute authority. When things come into our lives, when things come into our lives that are challenging to us, when we face things that that are difficult for us, when the, the future is not certain for us, when we come to an end of ourselves, when we ourselves are in mortal 
danger. Just having been diagnosed with cancer. Just having had a serious heart attack. When we get old, you find that you just can't do the things you used to be able to do and become more dependent on others. My father-in-law, Ken Brooks, who I've spoken about on occasion here, is now 92 years old. And, and for the last probably decade, he has really been unable to do much by himself. And his wife, who is now 90, takes care of him as his sole caregiver. What happens when you get to that point in your life? Well, you, you, you are no longer in control of the circumstances that are around you. And things look rather bleak when we've lost a loved one. No hope seemingly before you. When there is immense emotional pain and grief. A home burnt to the ground or blown away in a storm. I've seen that several times in the Philippines over the years. We, when we as believers who face those sorts of life-changing situations, we begin to look at things differently. You begin to look at things differently. We begin to see things with eternity in view. And the temporal things that were so important to us seem to fade away when you're facing those sorts of life-challenging situations. We begin to see the temporal nature of the things of the world. The things that were once so important, so debate-worthy, are no longer so important. The security of things disappears. For things bring little or no comfort or security to a soul who's contemplating these sorts of things. It's true, isn't it? All those things that seem so important when you are facing life-changing situations, life-altering situations just fade in light, fade in, in reality, and they have no eternal value. This is what Isaiah was experiencing. This is what Jeremiah experienced. Sometimes when all our hopes are stripped away, Sometimes when the Lord takes all of those hopes away, we recognize we have no other recourse but to turn to Him or slump down in discouragement and depression. Which will we choose? In those times, the Savior will often come to us and give us a fresh glimpse of Himself. How many times have you been there, my brothers and sisters? How many times have you been in difficult, heart-wrenching situations? The older you get, the more of them you'll experience. And in those times, you opened up the Word of God. Perhaps with tears in your eyes, you opened up the Word of God. And there in the Word, He showed you a fresh glimpse of who He is. In His glory. Been there? That's what Isaiah is experiencing. 
And through the pages of Scripture, we see the Lord high and lifted up. And we are encouraged and challenged to look beyond the darkness. Look beyond the temporal. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help is in the Lord who made and created heaven and earth. King Uzziah had died. And he gets a vision of the true king still on his throne, still with absolute power, still with absolute sovereignty, the king of glory as Isaiah sees him high and lifted up. Now we remember from, if you remember going back to John chapter 12, and all of you have done this before, or most of you have done this before, I should say. If you go back to John chapter 12, you will find in John chapter 12 that the vision that he has of the Lord here in in Isaiah 6 is a a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think John chapter 12 makes that clear. So he is seeing a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he did not know that, high and lifted up. And a greater than the temple is here. A greater than the temple is here. The temple that Solomon built, he would even acknowledge himself that this temple cannot contain you. Cannot contain the God of heaven. And here he sees one who is greater than the temple. One that is lifted up. Lifted up. You see him in this vision. In your mind's eye can see the Lord Jesus Christ being lifted up. God, the Lord of hosts, being lifted up in the temple. Now, I want to go to this point quickly. Lest I run out of time. But you'll notice something here that happens. The vision that Isaiah gets is of the temple. Now, you can debate whether it's the heavenly temple in heaven, or you can debate whether he's getting a vision of the earthly temple, Solomon's temple, there in Jerusalem. I tend to believe it was a vision of the inner sanctuary, the holiest of holy, of Solomon's temple itself. And he gets in vision the Lord Jesus, or the Lord, high and lifted up within this temple. And we'll look, at the, we'll look at that vision in just a moment. But is it not startling to you that King Uzziah has just died? King Uzziah went into the holy place and was cursed with leprosy and was taken out. Here is Isaiah in a vision in the holiest of holies. Where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. Where the, where the cherubim were covering it over, this, over the mercy seat. And there above it all, he saw the Lord of hosts. And it starts out by saying, it starts out by saying, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Master. I saw the Possessor. I saw Adonai. And He was high. And He was lifted up. And the robe, the, the, the robe, because the word train really is kind of a, something that came along later. It has the idea of the bottom of His robe. It was filling the temple, showing His glory and His splendor. 
And here he is in the holiest of holies. No wonder, as we get to in a few minutes, no wonder he cries out, Woe is me! I am undone! If Uzziah was cast out and had leprosy to the day of his death because he was in the holy place where no one but priests ought to be, what will happen to me? I am in the standing in the holiest of holies in the presence of God Almighty. What will happen to me? Woe is me! I am undone. My life is over. It's finished. I have seen Adonai. I have seen the Lord of the armies. The Lord of hosts. I've seen Him. His robe filling the temple. Verse 2, and above it stood the seraphim. Each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. What is the meaning of all of that? I, I don't know. I can't say definitively what it is, you know. But I know, I, I, I suppose we could say that they cover their face because they're in the presence of the Holy God. Even though they are holy creatures, serving God, they cover their face symbolically in the presence of the Holy God not to look on Him who is holy. They cover their feet. And feet, of course, in that Eastern culture has the idea of uncleanness and unsanitariness. That's why they would pick up a, a sandal and throw it at somebody. That's the worst kind of degradation, the worst kind of insult you can give to someone. They cover their feet and they fly. And as they're flying, they're continually calling out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Trace that phrase through the Scripture. That's a neat phrase to trace through. The whole earth is full of His glory. Three times. And we know that in Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. He repeats it three times in order to show perhaps the completeness of this. He is the only completely holy one. And there is none like unto Him. None like unto the holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Have you ever spent some time, and I'm sure most of you have, at least some of you have for sure, have you ever spent time simply meditating on the holiness of God? The holy character of God? You know what it does? It takes away all pride. It melts away all boasting. It makes us go from here to here. As we look upon him who is holy. I remember Ernie Wagner in his latter years. I remember visiting him in the hospital. And I remember just talking with him. And Joey and Andrea and Elaine would remember for sure. And others in this room. But at the end of his life, oftentimes Ernie would talk about what a sinner he was. What a sinner he was. And we would look at Ernie and say, um, are you kidding me? You are one of those guys that we all look up to. You're one of those guys who have lived this Christian life for so many years and have been faithful to the things of God. And you 
You're saying that you are a sinner, such a sinner. I think it was because you began more and more to reflect on the holiness of God. To whom he was going. Into the holy presence of a holy God. And the only way he knew that he could enter into that presence was having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way he could enter. Having been cleansed by the blood of Christ. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried. That gives you the intensity at which they cried out of, a, of the transcendent holy God whom Isaiah was seeing with his own eyes in this vision. The posts were shaken and the house began to be filled with smoke, likely a symbol of the, of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, filling the place as it did in Solomon's temple of old. And I said, said Isaiah, Woe is me! I'm done for! Woe is me! My life is done for! Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, he caught a fresh glimpse. And if Isaiah was ever proud of his ministry, if he was ever proud of being a prophet, ever proud of all the prophecies that he gave, even though these things were hard hard to say, and if that lifted him up at all to make him feel good in the eyes of those he looked at, those he was preaching to, that he had some, he had this very unique and special relationship with the Lord. If he was looking up and get, and being puffed up at all, this changed it and it changed it forever. And this man was humbled in the presence of a holy God. He says, what? My, my lips, they're, they're unclean. How, how can I speak? How can I speak in the presence of such a holy God? The people that I teach, the people that I've prophesied to, they're unholy as well. They're unclean as well. Woe is me! And the Lord brings the seraph. The seraphim takes a coal off the altar of burnt offering and now brings it in and touches his lips. Of course, that is symbolic, isn't it? Of, of the sacrifice that was laid on the altar was now that which would purify his lips in order that he might speak. One must have a heart that is pure before the lips can speak things for God. And Isaiah now had his life turned around. And with the coal from the, from the altar, his lips are touched and his sin is taken away. He's purged of that sin. You notice one thing it does not say here. It does not say, and so also the sins of the people. It was for Isaiah that he took away his iniquity. Oh, my brothers and sisters, we too have been cleansed by a greater sacrifice than that which rested on the altar in Jerusalem. We have been cleansed by a sacrifice outside the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
when the Son of God, this very high and exalted and lifted up one, when he became a man and entered into this world and offered himself up as a sacrifice for you and I, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And his life has touched our lives, and he has made us whole. His life has touched our lips. His blood has touched our lips and has made us able to speak the gospel and the truths of the Word of God. Cleansed. His iniquity is taken away. His sin is purged. And then you hear the voice of the Lord. The voice now again of Adonai. The voice of the Master. The voice to whom Isaiah belonged. The possessor of Isaiah speaks again. And he says, Who shall I send? Who will go for me? And oftentimes this is used as a great missionary call, isn't it? We've heard it many times used that way as a great missionary call. The Lord calls out, Who will I send and who will go for me? Here am I! Send me! And there's a bit of pride in that, isn't there? I don't think that's what it was like here at all. I think Isaiah being in the presence of a holy God by, in, in whose presence he was trembling as it were, recognizing his own sinful nature, recognizing how short he came of the glory of God. And when his lips were purged and his sin was removed, and the Lord cries out, Who shall I send? Who will go for me? I think the response of Isaiah was more like this. I'm here. Will I do? Can, can you use me? Can you use me? I'm here. Isaiah had just been humbled by the presence of Almighty God. This was not an acceptance in a boastful way. It was simply a man who is now broken, asking God if he could use one like him. Oh, my brothers and sisters, so it is with us. So it is with us. Catching a fresh glimpse of the glory of God. Catching a fresh glimpse of who He is. Should cause us to say, Lord, can You use me? Can You use me? The likes of one like me? Can You use me? And the very next words out of the Lord's mouth is go. Go. You're the type of man I'm looking for, Isaiah. You are now a broken individual. You are now one who is humbled before me. Now, now I can use you for my glory. Go! And he goes with a very, very hard message to preach to the people of Israel. And we will look at that message next week.
a very hard message to the people of Israel. And I would add that in much the same way, the ministry that the Lord has placed in our hands in the day and age in which we live is a hard ministry. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very thankful this morning that we know the Lord of hosts. We are so very thankful this morning that we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have been cleansed by His precious blood. That we who were unclean in all our ways, unable to purify ourselves, have been purified by the blood of Thy Son. And here we are as those who can look up into Your face and read through the portions of Scripture and recognize how great a God You are. How awesome You are in all Your majesty and all Your glory and all Your power. We can recognize through the pages of Scripture that there is none like unto You. You are the almighty transcendent God and there is none like unto You. And yet You have spoken to our hearts as those who have received Christ as our Savior. And You have said, Who shall I send? Who will go for me? May we, from broken hearts, respond. Here am I. If you can, use me. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.